Now for our scripture reading. It'll be from John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Carrie Lynn. Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and it's really good to see each one of you, and a special uh, welcome to you if you are uh, newer here this morning, especially if this is your first time with us. I know uh, stepping into uh, a new church for the first time and uh, visiting is not always an easy thing to do, so thanks for doing that with us this morning, and hopefully you felt warmly welcomed already this morning. We're um, liking to take a, a moment before uh, we look at the passage of Scripture that's read each week to just pause and pray and ask for God to continue to be at work as we seek to understand the word that he has spoken to us. So I'd like to do that for us now. Father in heaven, you um, have indeed spoken your word to us. And I pray now that as we spend these next moments together thinking and uh, listening to it closely, that you would be at work um, in each of us in ways that only you can be. So we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one true word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this Sunday we're entering into a new teaching series for the season of Advent, uh, which is the, the season kind of leading up to Christmas where Christians prepare uh, to celebrate Christmas. And one of the things that's just fascinating about Christmas is it's the really the only major kind of Christian holiday that's also a really uh, significant cultural holiday, even for those who uh, wouldn't necessarily claim the Christian faith. So, you know, for example, Easter, you could argue, is the the most uh, significant of Christian celebrations, the resurrection of Jesus, but culturally there isn't a lot of celebration of that, um, in the, especially leading up to it and all that kind of thing. And, and again, um, there isn't really a big cultural celebration of Lent. I mean, maybe we like to get in on Fat Tuesday a little bit as an excuse to do some partying, but beyond that, lots of people in the broader culture who wouldn't claim Christianity aren't engaging in, in Lent. But, but Christmas is different, isn't it? Uh, Christmas is, whether you're a Christian or not, it's a season of, of lights, of, of charity and generosity, a, a season of hope and belief. Uh, even in the broader culture, even for those who wouldn't necessarily claim uh, Christianity as their faith background. And because of this, though, both religious people and non-religious people, I think, can end up feeling uncomfortable about Christmas uh, because of, the, um, of this kind of tension of it being both a Christian kind of ceremony and celebration as well as a cultural holiday. So, you know, religious people end up feeling uncomfortable that Christmas is becoming too secular, that it's not uh, connected enough to the, the real story of Christmas. But then on the other hand, uh, more non-religious people feel uncomfortable that the whole thing is still just a little bit too Jesus-y uh, at, its, at its core, and why can't we just kind of celebrate and gifts and generosity and uh, serving without all this Jesus-y stuff. And yet, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, and in particular the Gospel of John, what you find is a welcome mat laid out for both those who are religious and non-religious. 
welcoming them into this story of what Christmas is all about. And there are four Gospels in the New Testament. The Bible's kind of divided up into two big chunks. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Gospels are what start off the New Testament, this big second chunk of the Bible. And the Gospels, they're stories um, of Jesus's life. Um, They're accounts of his life that try to make sense of the meaning of all that Jesus did and said and, and why that matters for us today. Well, and each of the Gospels is unique in how it begins telling the story, but begins giving the account of Jesus's life. So the first gospel to be written is the gospel of of Mark. Mark is, it's action-packed, it's fast-paced, and so when you open to the beginning of Mark and start reading, Jesus is an adult and he's just right in the middle of of the action. It fits Mark. He's teaching, he's healing right out of of the beginning of the gospel. But then when you turn to Matthew and Luke, two of the other gospels, they start the story of Jesus a little bit further back. They give us accounts of his birth. So if you read the Christmas story, you've heard the Christmas story told, those are found in Gospels of of Matthew and Luke. And they even have genealogies that trace Jesus' stories back further than that. So uh, Matthew, for instance, traces Jesus' lineage all the way back through this great king of Israel, King David. And then eventually he traces it all the way back to Abraham, the, the beginning of the Jewish people. Now Luke takes the story even a bit further back than that. Luke in his genealogy, he tells us the story of Jesus' birth, he gives the genealogy, he traces Jesus' lineage, his story, all the way back to Adam, the very first human. So Matthew takes us to the beginning of the Jewish people, Luke takes us all the way back to the beginning of the human race, but John takes us back even further than that. John takes us back to the beginning even before the beginning. John gives us a cosmic view of Christmas. And another thing that's unique about John's gospel is it's one of the few books of the New Testament that's uniquely written, addressed to those who don't yet believe. So at the very end of John's book, he he lets us in on this. He tells us this. In chapter 20, in verse 30, John writes these words. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying that Jesus did a lot more than I could write down in my book. He did way more than I could possibly contain here. But the reason that I chose to include the things I put in here, I specifically chose them, selected them, picked them out, arranged them so that you would come to a place of believing and understanding who Jesus is and believing him and finding life in his name. When Christianity or Christ community first began, it was always with the design that this would be a church that would be for more than just people who already believe. It would be a place for those who are, who are curious and questioning to explore more about what it means to believe. John is writing for those people. And the claim that John is making here is that life, the life that we really want, the life that we really long for actually comes from outside of us. You see, this is a core idea in Christianity. 
You see, the culture says that what is inside of us is okay, that we're basically good inside. The problem is what's outside of us, the, the difficult people and circumstances and, and all that around the world. That's, that's what's wrong with the world, something that's outside. Inside, we're basically good. It, it says that if you, you can be a good person, you can have a successful life, if you just dig down deep and find the goodness that's inside of you, you have everything you need within you. But you see, Christianity, it says something completely different. Christianity says the root of all of your problems is actually inside. And that the life that we truly long for can only come from outside of us. That it's not a matter of looking more deeply inside of us to find life, but it's actually a matter of, of looking outside to someone, to something else. Now, I think part of us reflexively sort of bristles at that. The implication that, that we're dependent, that we're not autonomous, uh, even the idea that well, you're, what, you're saying I'm lacking in some way or there's a flaw inside of me, that the, the problem is me deep down, that we're defective. And even though we, we bristle at that idea, yet we, I think we feel it all the time. We feel that lack. We feel that emptiness inside. It's why we end up working so hard to prove ourselves. It's why when, when we're criticized, we, we get so defensive. You have that moment when someone criticizes you and you just kind of keep turning those words over and over again and you're going to be ready with a comeback the next time someone else says something like that to you. you ponder it. And the claim that John is making here is that life, the life that we actually want, that it comes from outside of us. That's that core idea. The source comes from outside of us. And here in John chapter 1, he identifies that source of life that is outside of us that we need. He identifies it with the language of the word. And so God, John's goal for us this morning in these verses is that we would believe the word. And that by believing the word, we would find the life that we truly long for. So what we're going to see this morning as John introduces us to the word is that the life that we long for, the life that we actually want, is a person, it's a gift, and it's everlasting. But the life that we truly long for is a person, it's a gift, and it's everlasting. So first, the life that you long for is a person. John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was, with, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. These verses... Those just couple of sentences, that little collection of words here at the beginning of John's gospel. Those words change the flow of history. They transformed the history of human thought. Um, French philosopher Luc Ferry, who's not a Christian, he's very clear about that, in his book, The Brief History of Thought, points to these verses in John chapter 1 
as a key turning point in human thought that altered Western civilization. Why? Well, it all has to do with this idea of the word. So when John begins and he says, in the beginning was the word, he isn't just pulling that saying, oh, this would be a nice way to start this idea of the word. No, that, that concept of the word was carefully chosen and it's really strategic. It is the welcome mat that, that welcomes everyone from everywhere into this story because with that language of the word, John immediately establishes common ground for anyone in the first century because it had deep roots in both the Jewish Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. If you were a Jew, that language would have resonated with you. But also it had deep roots in connection to Greek Stoic philosophy as well. So in Jewish thought, the word, when you heard that language of the word, you, you immediately thought of, of God and his revelation of himself, his, his making himself known to his people, his word, his teaching, his law. John even taps into that. He connects us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible with those words in the beginning. Right? The Bible, the Hebrew Bible in Genesis begins with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And as you read on in Genesis chapter 1, it's clear that God does this creation by speaking. He says, let there be light and there is light. So the, the God of the Bible gets things done with words. He speaks and things happen. He creates with words. He reveals himself to his people with words. So that immediately ties into this big category of, of Jewish thought. But in Greek thought, the word or, or the logos is the idea of the logos was a, stood for a unifying philosophy of everything. It was the wisdom, the deep truth that held all things together. The key principle that if you understood it, it led to a wise life was the way that you talked about the harmonious cosmos and how you were to pattern your life after the ordering of the universe. So if you were a Jew and you wanted to live a good life, you, you followed the word. If you were Greek and you wanted to live a good life, you, you dedicated yourself to understanding the, the, the word, meaning the cosmos, the, the, this wisdom principle that held all things together. So John uses this language, he invites everyone in, but then he immediately does something that would have been scandalous to both Jewish thought and Greek thought. He says the word is a person. The word is Jesus. The word isn't just words spoken by God, the word is God. That was scandalous for a Jew. Jesus was a, a man, a human being. How could he be the divine word? But it was scandalous for the Greeks too. The word isn't a, a person. You can't have that in a human being. It's the, it's the divine ordering of the universe. John is saying the life you want is a person. The word is clear, John makes it. It's distinct from God and yet it also is God. This is an introduction right here to the beginning of the Hebrew or the, the biblical conception, the Christian conception of God as triune, of three and one, one God and three persons. Jesus is the creator. All life is from him and dependent on him. John makes that clear. Nothing exists 
without Jesus. He invented everything. Now you have to understand just how shocking this was for John to be saying this. John is a Jewish man and he's making these claims about another Jewish man. That is stunning. Because you see, at this point in time, in in the first century, when John is writing these words, if there was one thing that the Jewish people had, had figured out that they had taken as a bedrock truth that they were absolutely settled on, is that there was one true God and he certainly was not a human being. We don't worship idols or human beings or statues. We worship the one true God. And yet, here you have John saying Jesus is the word. Jesus of Nazareth, born to Joseph and Mary, is in fact the word who spoke into his existence the very stars under which he lay as a baby in Bethlehem. What would it take for you to say that about another human being? I mean, I've known some pretty amazing people in my life. My wife, good friends, impressive colleagues, parents, really good, amazing people. But I haven't come close even once to being tempted. I think, you know what, they might actually be the divine force that holds the universe together. And yet somewhere in John's journey with Jesus, he came to the point of saying that. And this claim that that Jesus was the word, as shocking as it was to the Jewish framework, it's just as scandalizing to the Greeks. (laughs) Again, Professor Luke Faree writes this. He says, to honor, or excuse me, to the horror of the Greeks, The Christians maintained the divine principle was in no sense identical with the harmonious order of the universe, but was incarnated in one outstanding individual, namely Christ. And Ferry argues that that transformation, that the word, that this life that you long for, that it's not an abstract principle, that there's a person, that that transformation forever and dramatically changed the entire course of human thought. Why? Again, this, this leads us to the next point here. That the life you want is a gift. You see, the Christian claim that the word is a person completely changed how it is that you get the good life. How you access true wisdom. This is the revolutionary idea, Ferry says, that shaped, reshaped the entire course of Western thought. Again, he's not a Christian, but reflecting on these opening words in the Gospel of John, Luke Ferry writes this. He says, from now on, it is no longer reason that will be the theoretical faculty par excellence, but faith. You know what he's saying there? It's not, now reason is not supreme. Faith is supreme. For Christians, truth is no longer accessed through the exercise of human reason, which can grasp the rational and logical order of the cosmic totality. From now on, what will permit man to approach the divine, to know it and comprehend it, belongs to quite a different order. What will count here above all is no longer intelligence, but trust 
in the word of a man, the man God, Christ, who claims to be the Son of God, the Word incarnate. It is no longer a case of thinking for oneself, but of placing trust in another. Do you see what this means? It means that the life that we long for is a gift. It's grace. And grace is just as shockingly scandalous and wonderful today as it was then. See, the message of Christianity 2,000 years ago and today is that what is required to live a good life is not supremely having intelligence or the ability to understand the wisdom of the world. It's not found in personal achievements or material prosperity. It isn't the result of having leisure enough to contemplate the, the profound mysteries of the universe. No, what is required for the good life is trust, belief in a person. I said that that central claim of Christianity is both scandalous and wonderful. Why is it scandalous? Well, because of what we said at the beginning, we don't want to be dependent. We want to think for ourselves. We want to be autonomous. That's what modern, sophisticated people do. They think for themselves. But the problem is, is that none of us, none of us really think for ourselves. There's nothing new under the sun. All of our thought is dependent on thought that goes before it. And we are profoundly and deeply shaped by our cultural moment. Just imagine if you had been born 150 years ago in North Africa. How different your view of the world would be. So much of your thought is, is derived dependent on the culture in which you live. But there's another problem, too, with this idea of thinking for your, yourself and that the key is to having intelligence and, working, intelligence and working out a system as the key to the good life. The, the problem is, is that it, it subtly leads to an elitism in you. Because, you see, if you believe that what's required for a good life is, is to have a superior understanding or, or achievement or conformity to a particular set of, of contemporary cultural ideals, being up with the times— it will always lead you to look down on those who you see as inferior in their understanding or who don't adopt to the cultural standard of the moment. So if you're more uh, conservative, traditional leaning, you look at, at the liberals and, and you say, those, those people, they're so unmoored from tradition, they're just throwing everything out. You look down on them, you have a sense of superiority to them. Likewise, if you're more, more progressive, more, more liberal in your ideas, I can't believe these, these conservative, traditionalist people, they need to get with the times. These ideas are so old, they're so outdated, so repressive. How unenlightened. But this is why the message of Christianity is so wonderful. The message of the word you see, it, it doesn't take any sort of special knowledge or understanding or, or being a part of, of the in-group or having attended the right institutions to have the good life. It simply says, trust, believe, believe in this person and you will have life. It's a gift. And the requirement for receiving the gift is, is not intelligence, it's humility. 
Little children can receive it. Those with no education can receive it. Those who are, who are old and frail can receive it. Those who are young and frail who can receive it. Those who, who, are, who are weak and wounded and sick and poor, they can receive it. This is why Jesus was so attractive to the, the poor and marginalized when he was on earth. He just said, come to me. Again, as Ferry points out, what's required is not the comprehension of philosophers, but the humility of simple folk. The life that you long for is a gift. You don't have to be smart enough or good enough. It's a gift. You don't have to have enough accomplishments, be put together enough. It's not dependent on you. And that is gloriously good news. Because our moods and our abilities, they go up and down throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout our lives, right? I mean, you have woken up this morning feeling great about life. Or maybe you came in this morning feeling absolutely miserable. So some days you may feel really good about yourself. Other days you may feel an absolute sense of, of self-loathing and despair about yourself. And you see, if your hope for a good life, if it's totally dependent on the whims of your age and your hormones and how hungry you are and how good of a sleep you got last night or didn't get last night or the stability or instability of relationships or how things are going at work, then you are constantly going to be on a roller coaster. But if life, the life that you long for, is a gift that comes from outside of you by receiving a person That means that no matter what, your life is secure. It's not dependent on you. Think about citizenship. If you were born in the United States, you are a United States citizen. It's a gift. It just is. It isn't dependent on your feelings or your abilities. You might be smart, you might not be, you might feel patriotic, you might not, but none of those things change the fact that you are a citizen if you were born here. It's a gift that's given to you from the outside. It's not dependent on you or anything you've done. You see, you receive the gift of citizenship by being born. You receive the gift of life in the word by belief, by being born again. What is belief? Well, the kind of belief that John wants us to have is not just an affirmation of facts or information in the way that you say, well, I've memorized some dates from history and I I believe that certain things happened at a certain time. It's not less than that, but it's more. The kind of belief that John is talking about is trust in a person. Belief is trust in a person, in the person. Do you trust in Jesus, the word, to give you life? Maybe you say, Bill, I I just, I can't believe. I've tried. There's just too many hurdles. I can't believe. And okay, I, I get that. But I just want to remind you again, neither could John Remember, as a Jewish person, he is the last person who would have ever said that a man from Nazareth was the Word. 
It would have been blasphemy for him. It, it would have been like a K-State fan starting to chant rock, hawk, Jayhawk. John completely changed his worldview. He, he spent uh, his life with this person for three years and became convinced that he was God. He saw that he was willing to suffer for him. John, I can almost assure you that John had more reasons not to believe than you and I do, and yet he believed. And he wants you to believe. He's written a book so that you might believe to trust in Jesus. To quit looking at Jesus as just a baby in a manger and to pull back before this world even existed and see him as the word who spoke all things into being. And that this word then became flesh, became human to get to know you, to save you, to give you life, the life that you long for. A life that's everlasting, that's without end. Because you see, the life that we receive as a gift is life everlasting. Look at verses 4 and 5 in John chapter 1. In him, John writes, in the word was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And we'll spend a lot more on this idea of Jesus being the light next week. But the life that was given through him, the life that comes from the word, John's point is here, cannot be overcome by the darkness of death. Again, philosopher Luke Furry points out that this is another implication of the transformation of the idea of the word being from going from an abstract principle to a person in Christian thought. He says another implication of it is that this completely understands, changes how you think about death. He writes, the personalization of the word changes all factors in the equation. If the promises made to me by Christ are genuine, and again, Furry doesn't think they are, but he says, if the promises made to me by Christ are genuine, and if divine providence takes me in hand as an individual, however humble, then my immortality will also in turn be personal. In which case, death itself is finally overcome, not merely the fears it arouses. He adds elsewhere that Christianity would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. You see, the life offered to those who put their trust in the word, in Jesus of Nazareth, is a life that is without end. Because you see, the gospel doesn't just say you don't need to be afraid of death. It says that death has been conquered. That even on the cross, when the author of life, Jesus, the word, was being put to death, as the Acts, book of Acts puts it, even when you, it says you killed the author of life, even when the author of life was put to death, God raised him from the dead and defeated death for, forever. You see, the message of Christianity isn't that death isn't that bad after all. No, no, the message of Christianity is that death is worse than you think. It's a monster, but it has been conquered. It's been beat, it's been destroyed. And that if you're humble enough, not if you're smart enough, not if you're good enough, not if you're worthy enough, if you are humble enough to give up your autonomy, to lay down your pride, and trust in your word, in the word, that everlasting life 
life without end can be yours also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us the word Jesus and that by the power of the Spirit you enable us to believe and to know. I pray now that you would bring about belief where it is not and that you would strengthen and deepen it where it is. We pray this in Jesus' name, the word who is before all things, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.